But I think it's also important to remember that Gnosticism is not anything and everything. It is not just Christian mysticism, not just initiatory practice, not just occultism, not just resistance to the dominance of reductionist forms of Christianity and other world religions. It's not just free thinking. It's not just world hating. It's not just rebellion and iconoclasm. While all of these things may find themselves within Gnostic communities and in the practice and understanding of Gnosticism by individuals, they don't define the category in any meaningful way. And we should, to an extent, be on guard against too much softening of the borders between Gnosticism and other faith commitments and faith communities, while still recognizing that the umbrella under which we're standing is a surprisingly vast one. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joannite Church. Talks that I'm most interested to hear, particularly because uh, uh, Grace offered me uh, a copy in advance, warning me that it might be a little bit different. And then I said, sure, send me a copy. And he said, no, I'm just going to surprise you. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I guess we roll the dice. So uh, this talk is with His Grace, Dr. William Dean, primate of the United States, and it's entitled Why Gnosticism Now? Myth in the Age of Scientism. His Grace, Dr. William Bean, is the Archbishop of Wisconsin and primate for the United States of America for the Apostolic Johannite Church. He received his PhD in philosophy from DePaul University and is the author of the historical pivot the philosophy of history. See, everybody screws this up. I know Jonathan did because I just edited the video. Philosophy of history in Hegel, Schelling, and Holderland, as well as articles on a wide range of philosophical topics. In addition to his duties within the AJC, His Grace also teaches philosophy in the Chicago area, specializing in ethics and the history of philosophy. And before uh, His Grace makes the joke, uh, he teaches ethics because they wanted an outsider's perspective. We've got, there's, there's only two jokes that happen at the beginning. There's, there's, you know, Sean says, uh, you know, well, I'm not a scholar. And I say, well, I am, you know, and that was the other one. So Um, thank you all very much. Um, It's great to have something of a conclave. I know that if uh, you are like me and many of you, I know are in this regard, uh, conclave is the highlight of of the year, and uh, while this isn't the way that we had had planned, I think that, uh, as you can tell, some of the the banter and the camaraderie and uh, the 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 fun of a conclave is still present, and that's a that that's a testimony to our community right there. Um, originally, I had planned this talk to be a more or less scholarly examination of the place of Gnosticism as a practice in the 21st century. And it is that, I think, but it also became something very different along the way. Um, I thought it would be much like scholarly papers I've given in the past. It, it, It isn't. And even though it covers some of the same material that I've talked about in earlier presentations for the AJC, uh, it covers, I think, some new ground as well. So I hope that you guys will indulge me. The title of the paper is 
why Gnosticism now? And really, I began to think of this as two separate questions, each of which I think needs to be addressed separately in order to really come to anything that could even vaguely resemble an answer. The first question is, why Gnosticism? Why Gnosticism anytime? What are we talking about when we talk about Gnosticism? What do we mean when we talk about classical Gnosticism or neo-Gnosticism or modern Gnosticism? The second question, of course, is why now? What is specifically true about our age, our time, that calls for a kind of spiritual renewal to which Gnosticism might be a key? And finally, then, how do we put these two together to try to address the question, why Gnosticism now? Why Gnosticism? Maybe the better question would be, what Gnosticism? Or maybe, which Gnosticism? First, I think it's important to make the distinction between classical and more or less contemporary Gnosticism, perhaps even include something of a, a middle usage as well. When we talk about classical Gnosticism, we're talking about the Gnostic sects that never would have called themselves by that name. These are groups that emerged in, from the first century BCE to about the, the fourth or fifth century CE and that were influenced by a wide variety of sources, including Christianity and Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Neoplatonism. And they were also influenced by other traditions to form truly synthetic and syncretic religions. Later on, I'm going to suggest that there are a handful of key elements that really define classical Gnosticism, and to a greater or lesser extent, these can be applied to modern Gnostic ideas and faith communities. We shouldn't imagine, of course, that these early communities were monolithic in any sense of the word. They were scattered, they were diverse. And there's not a whole lot that we could use to draw all of them together in any way that would accurately reflect every single one. So let's ask the question, what Gnosticism? Which Gnosticism? For much of the history of Christianity, Gnosticism was simply a heresy. That is, a particular misunderstanding of the Christian message and the Christian Gospels. It stood early on as an opposition to the emerging orthodoxy that, that led up to and then followed from the Council of Nicaea in 325. A heresy is defined as an obstinate belief that runs counter to the accepted beliefs of, of a community by a member of that community. For example, in the Catholic canons, uh, heresy is defined as an obstinate denial after baptism of something which must be believed for the Catholic faith. And that after baptism is important because it recognizes that this is something that comes from within. And heresy is also uh, always an internal phenomenon. To a certain extent, this means that certain Gnostic groups would never fit into this category because they weren't primarily Christian in their orientation. But there were enough specifically Christian Gnostics to make their communities and practices show up on the radar of people like the good bishop of Leon, Irenaeus. Even 
if it is not simply cast as a as a Christian heresy. Gnosticism stands in opposition to the emergent Christian orthodoxy and hegemony, and as such stands in opposition to certain structures of authority. The institutional narrative that we use in the AJC, that's in our liturgy, specifically refers to a line of succession that comes from the See of Constantinople, which is characterized as hostile to that of Rome since the time of Photius. Modern Gnosticism attempted to recapture some of the spiritual impetus of the classical Gnostics. The tradition really begins in the 19th century with people like Fabre Palapra, though he might resist the label, people like Douanel and Bricot, who embraced it wholeheartedly. And it's part of the broader occult revival. For much of this history, recent as it is, modern Gnostics had no access to classical Gnostic texts the way that we do, by and large. The characterizations of Christian heresiologists were deemed sufficient to give us a sense of what Gnosticism really was. As I've noted elsewhere, these early heresiologists considered Gnostic beliefs to be sufficiently abhorrent and absurd that they felt no need to create straw men. The ideas were so patently false, prima facie, that accurately representing them would have been sufficient to convince any thinking person to abandon and ridicule these ideas. This is advantageous for us because the accounts of the enemies of Gnosticism are therefore strikingly accurate and reflective of the historical text to which we now have access. So we can say that they're accurate because we can compare them to compare the early characterizations to the texts that were found in the Nag Hammadi trove and, and others. One might even suggest that there's a kind of a middle period in which the term Gnosticism is used, but in an incomplete and largely inaccurate way to reflect Manichaean or idealist philosophical trends that relegated the material world to a kind of secondary status. This, of course, being one of the great inheritances from Platonic metaphysics. Hegel, influenced as he was in many ways by Jakob Böhme, was characterized as a Gnostic, largely because of his anti-empiricism. However, when we're referring to classical and modern Gnosticism, we're thinking more in terms of concretely and specifically religious and religio-magical practices and communities. So, what is it that defines this thing that we're calling Gnosticism? In general, I've claimed in the past that Gnosticism as a faith commitment or faith community involves three basic principles. These don't necessarily match up with the way that Gnosticism has been defined historically, and the extent to which they apply to any particular group that identifies itself as Gnostic varies pretty wildly. But ultimately, the problem of definition lends some credence to the idea that Gnosticism as a category is fundamentally flawed, but I'm going to stick with my three basic principles. The first is the most obvious, but somehow the most commonly overlooked, that is Gnosis itself, the transformative and experiential knowledge that transcends simple data gathering and even more complex and profound structures of ratiocination. Salvation through gnosis would seem to be the defining characteristic of any group that 
has any reason at all to characterize itself as Gnostic. However, the idea of salvation itself is problematic and has to be understood in a, a more complex way than, than what we see in, say, mainstream Christianity today, or even in the writings of the more philosophically astute theologians, both East and West. Ideas of vicarious atonement are largely abandoned within Gnosticism, and yet we don't lose the idea that we are in need of redemption. However, our fallenness is more often than not considered to be an aspect of our fundamental separation from the Pleroma, rather than attributable to some particular act of sinfulness. Nonetheless, we can talk about salvation in terms of the necessity of our return to the spiritual homeland or the reintegration of our being with the Godhead. And this takes place for the Gnostic by means of initiatory knowledge. Without this characteristic, any designation of a, a person, a text, a community, or a practice as Gnostic would seem to be misplaced. The second characteristic is that of the idea of the transcendent God. Now, I don't think that this excludes the possibility of divine action in the world, but largely for the Gnostic, the powers that function in this universe are subservient to the true God, whether it's known as the First Father, or the Depth, or the Sihe, or Profundity, or some other name. The transcendent God is ineffable because we are limited by the who are limited by the kenoma are blinded to the presence of the transcendent unknown god similarly the gods of this universe share in that blindness the blindness of the demiurge though of course that figure doesn't feature prominently in every form of classical or or modern gnosticism closely connected to this is the third aspect the valenced division between the material and spiritual realms. It would, of course, be wrong to say that every Gnostic is a world-hating dualist, and not every form of Gnosticism is shaped by the Manichaean division that relegates the material world to the realm of evil and limitation. There are certainly many forms of Gnosticism in which this hatred of materiality and its concomitant hatred of the body are completely lacking but there still remains a fairly rigid distinction between our world and the world of the fullness. As we've said before, this is uh, an inheritance from Platonism and the presence of a fragment from Republic in the Nag Hammadi corpus testifies to the importance that Plato's writings had for the early Gnostics. Of course, it could be argued that that influence is no less for mainstream Christianity, at least in the West, influenced so profoundly as it is by the work of Augustine. The division is certainly not one that is unique to Gnosticism, and it manifests much more significantly in small uh, Orthodox Christianity than in certain forms of classical Gnosticism, and certainly more than within the AJC. While the separation is clearly alluded to in our liturgical documents, but the extent to which it shapes Gnostic belief, of course, varies significantly. Naturally, there are other facets which are present to a, a greater or lesser extent in the various forms of Gnosticism as it presented itself historically. However, it seems to me that at least these three characteristics are shared most widely 
And they seem to define Gnosticism as a category that is at least meaningful and useful, if not naturally unproblematic. So what does Gnosticism come to designate or mean for us looking back on more than two millennia of its historical development? To be sure, Gnosticism seems to have always emphasized the symbolic and mystical dimensions of our experience of the world, in keeping with the privileging of Gnostic insight over other forms of knowing. Mystical practices which attune the soul to the spiritual realm are part and parcel of Gnosticism, both ancient and modern. And similarly, Gnosis has always been understood as something that is available to all, yet embraced by very few. Gnosis is a kind of specialized and esoteric knowledge, uh, as we saw in uh, the earlier talk, a kind of, of secret or occult knowledge that by its very nature is always going to be limited to a small group of individuals who cultivate it. Gnosticism never was, I think, meant to be a large mainstream religion, and the AJC will never be Rome, Canterbury, or Constantinople. Perhaps we should include Salt Lake City, just for good measure. Nor do I think that this represents some kind of, of failure. Success in, in spiritual endeavors should be measured in material or quantitative terms alone. And perhaps in some future age, what is secret now will become more widely known. And the shape of what we're now calling Gnosticism will change in a more exoteric dimension. This is, I think, the way of esoteric knowledge, that what is esoteric in one age, what is occult in one age, becomes exoteric, becomes widely known in another. Gnosticism has always spoken in myth and symbol, expressing the universal in the particular and calling on us to recognize the sacred in the mundane. Myth, traditionally in philosophy at least, is opposed to discourse, mythos and logos. But these are really just two different approaches to the most profound truths. Gnosticism is speculative, artistic, literary, but never at the expense of a rational understanding of the world. But I think it's also important to remember that Gnosticism is not anything and everything. It is not just Christian mysticism, not just initiatory practice, not just occultism, not just resistance to the dominance of reductionist forms of Christianity and other world religions. It's not just free thinking. It's not just world hating. It's not just rebellion and iconoclasm. While all of these things may find themselves within Gnostic communities and in the practice and understanding of Gnosticism by individuals, they don't define the category in any meaningful way. And we should, to an extent, be on guard against too much softening of the borders between Gnosticism and other faith commitments and faith communities, while still recognizing that the umbrella under which we're standing is a surprisingly vast one. I'm not suggesting that we gatekeep our borders, but we should be specific in our terminology. One of the most striking features of Gnosticism for me is that it seems to speak to an eternal tradition and an eternal striving of the human soul for liberation and reintegration. 
the fact that it seems to have persisted, despite all attempts to eradicate it, despite the loss of its sacred texts, despite the animosity of both the secular and religious world, speaks to something primordial and essential about the truths of Gnosticism. In this sense, I think that we can talk about a Gnosticism that is broader than what I've defined here. And at the risk of betraying the very notion of specificity that I insisted on just a few moments ago, perhaps Gnosticism is something that extends long before the Christ event and would persist even if that historical moment were forgotten. Gnosticism speaks to a very specific relationship to the world and to our, our fellow human beings. It would be too easy to simply suggest that it is an us versus them relationship, one of animosity or hatred. The caricature that's sometimes drawn of Gnosticism reflects this simplicity. And whenever I see a reference to Gnosticism in uh, the wider media, I can generally assume that, that they're using it in this very sort of pejorative sense. Like Christianity more generally, Gnosticism has a message that, that finds receptive ears among the, the disempowered and the disenfranchised, the alienated and the separated, those who were the victims of rather than the beneficiaries of temporal power. Gnosticism calls out to those who walk alone because they are different, and it offers others to share their journeys and dreams. The Gnostic will always be the outcast because they recognize that they are not at home, that their relationship to the world is one of uncanniness, unheimlichkeit, to use the word so favored by both Freud and Heidegger. Even among other Christians, the Gnostic Christian is a pariah, a heretic, one set apart and a voice crying in the wilderness. In some sense, Gnosticism embraces this, rather than seeing it as something to be cured or a problem to be solved. But at the same time, it is overcome by the possibility of a shared community of initiation, a network of those who hear the same clarion call of Gnosis. Gnosis demands activity. It demands intellect. It's not a practice for voyeurs or dilettantes or passive bystanders. It requires discipline and work and sacrifice, but also thoughtfulness and study. And as much as we say that the possibility of Gnosis exists for all people, in much the same way as Plato suggested that the capacity for noetic apprehension existed for all souls, Gnosticism has an intellectual bent to it especially in its modern form, which seeks to recapture something ancient, an object of history that will be rejuvenated by spiritual work. Now, this is not to suggest that Gnosticism should ever be a sterile academic exercise or that it is not accessible or open to those who lack academic inclination or training, just the opposite. The Gnostic, even when fascinated with ancient texts and more ancient languages, systems of eons and archons and hierarchies of spirits and correspondences, they are drawn to the language of the heart, the poetic rapture that springs from but overcomes intellectual or academic study. 
when I think about the Gnostic, I think about the image of Eros, the child of Poros and Penia, cleverness and poverty in Plato's Symposium. Plato writes, in the first place, he is always poor and anything but tender and fair, as many imagine him. He is rough and squalid. He has no shoes nor a house to dwell in. On the bare earth, he lies exposed under the open heaven, in the streets or at the doors of houses, taking his rest. And like his mother, he is always in distress. Like his father, too, whom he also partly resembles, he is always plotting against the fair and the good. He is bold, enterprising, strong, a mighty hunter, always weaving some intrigue or other, keen in the pursuit of wisdom, fertile in resources, a philosopher at all times, terrible as an enchanter, sorcerer, sophist. But the Gnostic is never entirely alone. Even the solo practitioner connects themselves to something broader, something greater, a community of initiates. As Nietzsche writes, close relatives in Artipus, those who are related to begin with on the basis of common and rare aesthetic experiences. Historically, what we know of Gnosticism necessarily reflects Gnostic communities, groups who shared practices and, and a shared understanding of the world and our place in it and gave meaning to their individual existence and, and allowed that that community to shape their relationship with their sisters and brothers and those who were outside the temple. The Gnostic community is a temple of living stones. Now, much of what I've said about Gnosticism, I think also applies more broadly to the anti-Nicene community more generally. And I think that there is some truth to the claim that Gnosticism represents primitive Christianity in its most fundamental form. It may be going too far, of course, to say that all the early Christians were Gnostics. But I think that the stream that flowed from pre-Christian Gnosticism and flowered into classical Gnosticism was well represented among early Christians. And so what we do carries on that tradition and that thread. So enough, perhaps now, about why, what, or which Gnosticism. So why now? Which now? To be sure, we don't just mean this particular moment, but rather this age, this epoch, this, not just this time, but our times. I think that there is a, a broad and a narrow definition of our times, mm -hmm. and both are useful in thinking about the meaning of Gnosticism for us in this moment. Of course, Times, eras, epochs, they're always identified after the fact, after the transformations which marked the stopping point, that is the etymological root of the word epoch. Where these eons begin and end is for historians to decide. And it's difficult to see the picture when one is sitting inside the frame. On the one hand, I think of our times in the sense that that Guénon used the term in the 1930s to designate the broad post-Enlightenment period that begins in the 19th century and extends through the 20th. 
the culmination of the rationalist project of the 17th century that blossoms into the technologized and industrialized society that reduces all experience to the quantitative pole of existence, very Ginonian reading. The radical inversion of traditional ways of organizing society and understanding our world and the place in it that begins as much with Ibsen and Freud as it does with Darwin and Marx. During this period, everything that we understood as a culture is called into question from the role of political institutions to the nature of physical reality to the function of art to our place in the natural world. As technological innovation and scientific discovery accelerated in the 20th century, the spiritual dimension of our lives was largely relegated to a minor place. Certainly in comparison to the high middle ages, religion became something that was ancillary to our everyday lives. But at the same time, the occult revival in this period demonstrated that the yearning for spiritual experience wasn't lost, but was simply taking on a radical new form that resisted the hegemonic doctrinal structures of the large institutional and mainstream faith communities. On the other hand, this was written in the 1930s, and this is perhaps no longer our world. We live in a world that isn't modern anymore, but postmodern or hypermodern. It's not anti-modern. It's not something fundamentally other than the modern world, but rather it overcomes the impulses of modernism by bringing them to apotheosis. It takes technology and science so far that they begin to resemble art, magic, and the distinctions between them become blurred and rewritten. Driven by the science of psychology, we embrace more than at any other time in history, the idea that we have the capacity to shape our universe on a fundamental level and are at the same time largely blinded to the inner workings of human consciousness generally and even individually. These two characterizations, the modern and the hypermodern, aren't necessarily at odds with one another. They overlap and perhaps they represent two stages and an ongoing acceleration that reaches out in manifold directions and it does not yet have a clear world historical shape to use Hegel's terminology. The age is still figuring out what it is. And perhaps this is its defining characteristic. We live in an age of lostness and alienation, and this becomes our identity. Science, religion, psychology, technology, art, commerce, sex, politics are no longer rigidly defined nor rigidly separated. In many cases, the categories we're familiar with simply don't apply anymore. And we're at a loss to give a coherent account of those who stand at the very forefront of our world historical development. On the one hand, we remain defined by categories of the hard sciences and materialistic philosophical assumptions, both ontological and epistemological. At its worst, 
this emerges as the phenomenon of scientism, the unquestioned and unquestionable faith in the capacity of scientific methodology to answer all questions and the relegation of anything that cannot be accounted for by science to the realm of fantasy and nonsense. The so-called new atheism of Harris, Dawkins, and others does a disservice both to the philosophical tradition of atheism, rich as it is, and the principles of scientific study by taking the part for the whole at every step. Any religious impulse is lumped in with the worst forms of fanaticism and fundamentalism. And the scientific dimension of the historical search for truth in all of its forms is taken to be the sole avenue for the discovery of what is. Faith in this discourse is reduced to blind faith, and science is elevated to omniscient infallibility. This is, as I think most good scientists will agree, contrary to the intellectual openness and the alethic humility that characterizes the genuine and authentic scientific striving to understand the natural world. Along with this comes a desire for simple and straightforward answers, as if that were what science in all of its richness and majesty promised. Complexity and sophistication become ridiculed, openly disavowed, as we search for knowledge only in factlets that can be expressed in 280 characters or fewer, or encapsulated in a three-minute video. The very availability of knowledge that's made possible by the astounding advancements of communications and information technology deprives us of the spirit of inquiry, which is the necessary precondition of those advancements. We fucking love science when it gives us simple answers that conform to our prejudices and caters to our ever-increasing desire for control and security. One of the many consequences of this is increasing political and tribal factionalism, the elevation of prejudice and hatred to personalities and identities. We want to know, to really know with the absolute certainty of the brainwashed who we are and that who we are is right and that those who are not we are wrong and evil and bad. It's no longer enough to say, I'm right and you're wrong. We must now say, I am right. You are stupid. You are evil. In part, this is the consequence of individualism rung amok. In part, it's a return to the simplicity of tribal identity. In part, it's a consequence of the democratization of information, the hatred of expertise and sophistication, the belief that, as Asimov said, my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. If a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, information overload is downright terrifying. Or to quote the just recently passed John Nesbitt, we're drowning in, for, in information and starving for knowledge. And this, this is our time. At the risk of overdoing my reliance on quotes, I appeal in hope to my off-deployed passage from Hölderlin's Patmos. Precisely where the danger is grows also that which has the power to save us. For Heidegger, that power is art. Art which 
cannot be reduced to simple utilitarian value and quantitative analysis. Art which addresses our yearning for a thoughtful, authentic engagement with the world. We are crying for a new faith, not a blind faith, not a, an ignorant uh, certainty or uh, materialism or atheistic faith, but a faith which is not faith, a faith rooted in authentic questioning, which does not shy away from challenging questions or difficult answers. A faith that looks forward in expectation for that which is earliest and most primordial. Such a faith will have to address not only the traditional purviews of faith commitments and faith communities, but the unique psychological and social voids left by the transformation of the modern and hypermodern world. It must address our profound need for community and belonging, to be part of something greater than ourselves, to find meaning in wholeness and shared value without giving over to identity politics or exclusionist chauvinism. It must offer us something that does not define itself in opposition to the other, but a unity that is open to difference and diversity because it is secure in itself. It must offer a world infused with wonder, a world that calls us into it and calls us beyond it. It must offer a sense of the beyond, the elsewhere that is nonetheless our own most home. We should, or it should, not attempt to explain away difficulty or complexity or gloss over distinctions. It should remind us that the universe always extends beyond our understanding. And yet, to understand the universe even in a small way is precisely what liberates us. It must, in its own way, make sense of our alienation, our separation, our suffering, our trauma. It must give us a way to engage with a world that is too often dangerous and frightening and unjust not by blinding us to the world or denying its reality, nor by seeking escape in Edenic fantasies. Why Gnosticism now? I don't think it takes too much detective work to realize that I believe that the faith that we're describing here is modern Gnosticism. In the richness of its myth, history, symbol and story, it offers us an alternative to the overly scientific and materialistic impulse of the modern world and opens us up to the possibilities of the hypermodern as it unfolds. I think that it is no surprise that we find among the ranks of modern Gnostics, even within the AJC, so many artists, poets, musicians, dramatists, authors, I think it's no surprise that Gnosticism appealed to the literary and aesthetic inclinations of late 19th century Europe. Earlier, we suggested that, that myth is so often juxtaposed with discourse, but it is more properly opposed to that scientific fundamentalism. It holds up as sacred precisely what is least valued in the world of technology. It connects us 
to an ancient tradition, perhaps even an eternal tradition, that speaks to some of the greatest minds of human history. Without denying its own genealogy, it gives new voice to primordial and maybe even universal experiences of the human soul. The fact that Jung was so fascinated with Gnosticism and saw in it a reflection of the psychological insights that had taken on a more rigorous and scientific cast in the 19th century should indicate to us that Gnosticism is capable of addressing some of the unique psychological and sociological needs that have arisen in the wake of the industrial and accelerationist age. We sometimes forget that psychology is at its root therapeutic. It seeks to ameliorate the wounds that have been inflicted on our psyches by our sojourn in the shadow world of matter. It offers us techniques for insight into our own being that uncover what is so often hidden in our everyday lives and brings it into disclosure. And in ritual prayer and liturgy, it allows the majestic universe in all of its complexity and richness to unfold in a way that is initiatory and transformative, enabling us to do the work of the pruning of the soul and the tending of the spiritual garden that will lead us to wholeness, compassion, and understanding. In short, it does not neglect the tools we need to be, quite simply, better human beings. So now, maybe a postscript, Gnosticism next. Gnosticism should never be just an ancient religion resuscitated and revived by nostalgics play-acting at primitive Christianity. It is a living faith that can address our time and our world in its uniqueness, not by mindly parroting or echoing the beliefs and practices and doctrines of our Victorian or Napoleonic or classical sisters and brothers, but by allowing their experiences to guide us to a greater and more authentic vision of an engagement with ourselves in the universe in which we find ourselves. Those who have picked up the historical thread of Gnosticism in various ways since the early 1800s found in this connection something that runs both forward and back. They stood at the forefront of everything new, whether we're talking about Fabre Palapra and his new Templars, and Eric Satie with his haunting and haunted explorations of sound, Douanel, Bricot, and Chevillon with their neo-Gnostic church, Antonin Artaud and the theater of cruelty, or Philip K. Dick's cautionary stories of a world that is not our own. These new prophets of Gnosticism are as much a part of our tradition as Valentinus or Basilides or Marcion. The new technologies and new forms of community which characterize the 21st century lend themselves with astounding ease to the paradigms of this faith that is ancient and contemporary and proleptic. We form electronic families, virtual congregations. We explore word and sound and light and color to fashion new stories, new myths, images and symbols to express our belonging and not belonging. We have at our disposal a range of 
of written works that would make the librarians of Alexandria weep in disbelief. All of these are resources to the modern Gnostic to explore the profundity of what is their search for meaning, for understanding, for truth, and for self-transformation. My hope is that organizations like the AJC, and we are by no means alone, will answer the question and answer this call. Why Gnosticism now? Because we are here now. And we have the possibility as a community to move ourselves and the human family forward in ways that will bear fruit that we may never taste and to preserve what is most precious in the heart of every human being, to nurture and to cultivate, to protect and encourage our divine heritage and that reminder of our home, the sacred flame. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, you made it sound like you had a terrible screed or rant to uh, unleash uh, on the world, but uh, I don't think there's uh, anything there that I couldn't have said only of much poorer because uh, because <laughs> you're the you're the philosopher and the and the uh, the, the the public speaker. I think um, I do have questions, but they're not fully formed because there's a lot to there's a lot to uh, latch onto there. So I'm going to bump out in favor of other other uh, speakers and questioners until I get uh, uh, you know my head together, as it were. But I did want to say uh, uh, thank you. That really hit the, uh, the 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 nail on the on the head. I, I quite enjoyed that. Oh, you're muted. Yeah, and there is the, uh, the, the picture that Cherry has, uh, as predicted, come through uh, in the chat with the, uh, the, the picture of me with my Fluttershy, so. Uh, Are there any questions or comments or people want to? Oh, sorry, I just wanted to acknowledge our conclave tradition on your shelf. And, uh, ah, yes. Yes, and, and it, warms, it warms my heart. <laughs> I have, I made sure that that Stonecutter Homer was was present and accounted for. Um, I didn't even have to look for him this time. He, he made sure that his his presence was well, well known. So uh, we'll put him back next to Fizzy Glitch over here. So I, okay, I've managed to, I've managed to roughly form my thoughts. And this is something, this is something that comes out of both parish discussion and Martinist Lodge discussion, and this is a little bit more kind of practical, uh, the material side of myths, I guess. Um, and uh, not so much a question, but almost to, to get your thoughts on it. One of the things that one of the things that we've discussed in the parish and, and discussed in Lodge is, um, you know, of course, the difference between myth and fact, or myth as myth as 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 truth. And, you know, and th there's we, you know, we've, of course, um, you know, as a community have wrestled and debated and gone back and forth on lots of things from esoteric history to the, the Joanite myth and kind of the stuff that, you know, that, that Pelleprat kind of stumbled upon in a Paris bookstall. And the bookstall, of course, is a, is a almost a, an esoteric trope after a fashion. Um, but 
there was one thing, and I think it was John Michael Greer who said it in, uh, you know, one of my favorites on the subject of esotericism inside a magical lodge, where he's talking about fake charters should equal fake lodge, right? Martinism had a charter from Bonnie Prince Charlie, <laughs> of all people, right? Or, or, you know, Martinez de Pasquale got a charter from, uh, from, his, from his father with an equally, uh, equally long name that purported to be from, you know, Charles Edward Stewart, um, you know, founding this thing. And he used it to found probably a dozen different lodges before he, he settled on something. And he created a system, um, you know, that is, is very true, very practical, very moral. Right. Like it doesn't just it's not just esotericism and it's not just religion. There's a there's a blend in there. So he managed to produce something very true, even though the foundation was likely very fake. Ditto ditto with the ditto with the gold with the golden dawn. Right. Right. Um, Probably with a mark, though I don't have experience with them. But we have a whole range of things. And perhaps this also connects to Dr. Farron's talk talking about the the nature of, of the occult. And we so I guess. My 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 question here, and and you know, and I'll I'll try not to make it like our matrimony talk where we de- debated you know the future of how we how we conduct ourselves in public view when our minds aren't actually settled. Um, I guess my thing, you know, to to and I think we've handled it pretty good so far in terms of balancing out to say you know this isn't likely real but it is likely true. Yeah. Um, you know, how do we you know as the as the world kind of shifts around us and i think the importance of landmarks and landscapes you know are not that they change but so much that we change and it allows us to measure that change how do we approach as a as a modern gnostic church how do we how do we approach that esoteric history uh or uh, whether it's the whether it's the joanite myth um you know or any other kind of esoteric uh myth or history or traditional history how do we how do we kind of uh you know, what do we do with it? I mean, it's obvious we're, we're going to continue with it in some form, but how do we how do we talk about it? I mean, I've got an idea because I do it, you know, every two weeks in, 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 in church. But, uh, you know, I'm curious to get your take on it. I, I think that that you and I are are very similar minds about this, that um, the, the fact that uh, that a myth is not literally historically true does not mean that it doesn't express uh, a profound truth. And the way that I talk about this to my students, and I think that anyone who's been to Conclave has probably heard me uh, uh, say this before, right? If you want to learn about uh, Nazism, right, uh, read William L. Shirer's uh, uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, because it's a phenomenal history of this moment in time where evil took on this particular form because he's a brilliant writer. He was a great historian and journalist, and he was in Berlin through so much of, of that history. So if you want to know about Nazism, read Shira. But if you want to know about, about evil, if you want to know about good and evil, read Tolkien, right? Not because we should take that as Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion as historical fact, right? But because precisely in their falseness, precisely in the fact that they are not correct, the true comes to the fore. That they are able to, through a kind of, of, of 
chorus of voices speak to something more than than what can be spoken to by history. And I say this as somebody who, like you, has an extraordinary love for history, right? But history tells us about the particular. Myth allows us to engage the universal. And so when we are are looking at uh, these founding myths, um, they should, if they are are authentic in in the truest sense of the word, express something that is is profound and real and true. Um, Not simply in the sense, I I mean, I'm not talking about sort of, you know, euhemerism where, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a myth that uh, expresses some historical fact, but but exaggerates the details or something like that. Um, you know, oh yeah, we read the the, the flood myth in uh, Genesis, um, but you know, uh, actually that's just reflective of some you know cataclysmic disaster, but not to the world destroying extent that it's it's depicted. Um, I, I don't think that that's what's at stake, but rather but rather that it, myth has this capacity to, uh, to, to allow us an insight into the way in which a people experienced their world and how we might experience our world. And when a myth speaks to us, it's because there is a meeting of those two comportments to the world. So when we read the institutional narrative, Right. Um, you know, do we take that literally to be true? Probably not. But it resonates with us specifically because it speaks to a, a profound truth that we have ourselves experienced. And that's why myth is so important, particularly in the, the modern and hypermodern age, that defined as our age is by. Um, scientific, materialistic, quantitative, and 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 utilitarian sources of value; those kinds of criteria would necessarily dismiss myth out of hand. They would simply say, "Well, myth—it's it's just a bunch of stories written by a bunch of goat herders, and it doesn't have any value at all." But that's to miss the point of how a myth functions, and so perhaps. Uh, now, more than any time, at least in in the history that I can think of, uh, we need myth. We need those stories. And we need to take them not as if they were true, not as if they were, were literally correct or historical facts, but we need to take them as myths. And I think that we are in a unique position because we aren't giving over to the 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 uh, materialism of myth we're not simply trying to either see some historical truth in it or uh, shoehorn it into historical reality but instead we are simply uh, allowing it to be what it is, to show itself as what it is, to to, to manifest as itself. And that, I think, is something that is, 
that is new, uh, but also very old, right? That is, is something that, that perhaps the ancients possessed that we have lost. And I think Gnosticism has uh, an opportunity to help us recover this in uh, a meaningful and important way. I was going to say that that uh, that I agree completely. That just actually helped me form a, a whole, whole kind of um, placing that into example. I guess one of the things I think of uh, when I think of myth is I think of the you know the the you know the the ancient Celts, which at first were the were British people, and then they were from Europe and Gaul, you know, and then they're as far afield as, as Turkey now. Right. And so now all, all these things where the 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 archaeology, the the further you dig into it, right, the broader the, the it expands and recedes the closer you get to it, to it, to a certain degree. And so now they know what defines a cult is actually a Celt is actually the culture rather than the rather rather than the bloodline. Right. And so yeah, so. The, uh, um, so it's it's defined by by culture rather than a, rather than a, a bloodline or a, you know DNA or or even in some cases um, you know archaeological evidence. So I wonder if kind of the the yeah I mean the 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 myths tell us more about the the people in some cases than the archaeology does. And yeah. so you know I'm wondering kind of you know if that same thing kind of you you lay that over kind of uh you know gnosticism and you know they're they're you know there people say well okay you know modern gnostics are not classical gnostics you know and here's why there was a definitive break people were stamped out oh it popped up here oh whack-a-mole there right but i mean the you know there isn't you know the the drop of water isn't isn't less water because it's not an ocean right it has the it has the same it has the same uh uh, essence, I guess it's that that old Zen thing of in, enlightenment for uh, for a wave is when it realizes it's the ocean, right? There isn't the classical Gnostics and the modern Gnostics; they're just the Gnostics. And the myth kind of makes that a reality, I guess. But I mean, yeah. I'm just spitballing. At the same time, I think that there is um, there is good reason to make that distinction that we shouldn't totally elide that distinction and simply say, oh, we are simply what they were. Because uh, I don't think that that's true. We are, for our time, perhaps what they were for their time. And that's a, that's, a different That's accurate, thing. yeah. And, yeah. And, and so we have, I think that we need to, to do both here, to say, yes, we are Gnostics. And that is a category that includes, you know, us, and it includes very, you know, Dwanel and the, the EGU. It includes uh, Paola Pratt. It includes Valentinus and the Manichaeans and the Sethians and, and Basilides and Marcion. And, you know, it, it includes all of those. And then to also say, we are modern Gnostic Christians and we are Joanites, and we are the AJC. And that is something very specific, and that is something very unique that has a, a, a particular character to it that oughtn't to be uh, glossed over. And, and I think that there's, we need to do both. And that, I think, is precisely the, the attitude that we need to take, where, where we don't simply say, well, it has to be one or the other. It has to be this or it has to be that. We say it's both. It's more. We stop doing either or, and we start doing both and. 
there was, I don't know if Jonathan's here, but there was something that Jonathan said once in Martinus Lodge about how he likes to be a Martinist because it, in, it envelops being a Gnostic or Hermetist, a Templar, a Kabbalist, you know, and, and all these other kind of things. And you can, you can specify down into those things, but you can still, whatever. I mean, kind of like types of chairs. Everybody knows they're a chair, even if one's a Chesterfield, you know, one's a stool, one's a, you know, that kind of. Well, it's, uh, uh, what, uh, what we were talking about before the Wittgensteinian, um, uh, family resemblance, right? Um, yeah. There's there's a family resemblance between what we do and what Palaprat did and what you know Valentinus was doing, but they're also different, and and we ought not to we ought not to try to erase those differences. Anybody else want to talk, or is it just going to be the the Sean and Will show as usual. Why have two bald guys when you can have like five bald guys? Come on, there's some, there's some other bald people out there. Speak up. I um I don't have any questions really. I, I just I just wanted to uh, give you some love, Will. That was a I thought that was an amazing, just an amazing way to lay out the the history and the present of the of the enterprise if i had my way i'd put that video on the front page of the the church website as our as our major moment of evangelism to the world oh, i thought oh, it was God, please now um, i know i know i know but shush, if only there were people great. who could who could make those decisions well i mean the reality is like <laughs> this taco first right so that's that's well, easily done Tony here who could actually probably make it look good so just I just um, thought it was a no, there is no ancient grimoire that could make this look good. <laughs> now that's that's the it was love a... of a long friendship right there. So I thought it was a I thought it was a beautiful and um and very educated, obviously very educated um way to lay out the the foundations and the and the significance of Gnosticism. Um, as it lands today, I, I was I was really moved. So well, I'm, I'm that's all. Thank, Thank you, you very much. So I second that as per my comments in the chat. Thank you. Thank you. I, it, it means so, so much to me to um, to have praise from from people that I that I love and respect so much. So thank you very much. Um, I, I think a lot of people have commented on on uh, just how comprehensive it was. I think what I also felt uh, great was that how much of a screed it was in such a positive way, <laughs> like that it's it's a it's a it's a call to to action about why this is necessary or why this is powerful or valuable, and I think that's that's often that um, the 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 why now question you know is. Is I think uh, something that maybe we can elide when we're spending a lot of time talking about what other people talked about a long time ago. Um, uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciated the the, the nowness of it. And and that was my that was my my impetus, and and it it grew out of um, the theme of the conclave, which was to look at Gnosticism as as it's moving forward and recognize that it isn't a static thing. It isn't uh, an historical artifact, but it is, it, it is rooted in its history. It is, 
it is grounded in its genealogy. And, and, and so we can, it, it's, it's an organism that carries its DNA forward, but is not defined by, by its DNA. And, and I think that, that we are in a position and perhaps in a, in a unique position in the AJC to, to help define who that organism is going to be um, and, and how it's going to see itself and how it's going to relate to, to the rest of the world. And, and I think that that's something that deserves to be done uh, thoughtfully and lovingly and compassionately and critically all at the same time. Uh, I was going to say a quick thing here before, because I noticed Brad's got his hand up. So a quick thing before I get to Brad, I was just going to mention, it reminded me of something that my predecessor said that Bishop Foster said, you know, talking about the, you know, in the, the hymn of the pearl, your father, the, the king, sent you just here to look for the pearl, not somewhere else. And, you know, and so you, the, the title of your thing is Why Gnosticism Now? And a lot of people, when they talk about, you know, well, particularly in hardship or difficult circumstances, they say, well, why me? Well, the answer to that is always, well, why not? Okay. Right. And so, well, why Gnosticism now? Well, can you think of a better time? Can you think of a better environment? Can you think of a better place? Can you think of a better set of complex shades of everything, set of circumstances uh, in which to apply Gnosticism? And realistically, I don't think you can. I think, I think this, is, this is the ideal. But of course, to take a Dr. Bean slant on that, it's the ideal to which everybody has to decide for themselves. Yeah. Right. The, or the, the elite to which anyone can belong. Uh, sorry, Brad, you had a question. Go on. Um, thank you. Um, no, I, I, not, not so much a, uh, a, a question, but, uh, just a comment. Um, Remnants, you said, you know, you, you had made a comment about, you know, something along the lines of a drop of water and taking it from the ocean and, um, the Zen Buddhist aspect of that. And I, you know, I had actually been reading a, a lot uh, on Zen Buddhism lately. And, you know, that I went back to one of my journals and I, and I had written this down and I just wanted to share this, you know, and it, and it has linkages and it has touch points and hooks back to what uh, uh, the whole discussion has been about, uh, not only today, but uh, specifically this evening, uh, you know, why not, and, you know, um, how can we span the, uh, the, how can we build the expanse or build the bridge uh, between uh, the differences of, uh, of thought and, and, and paradigms? And, you know, I, I wrote down, I'm sorry, I, I kind of ramble. Uh, it's been a long day, four kids and three dogs, son's wife, as she's in North Carolina, has been uh, a challenge and an opportunity. Uh, <laughs> but um, I wrote down, um, a drop of water taken from the ocean does not make it any less than the same ocean from which it was taken. It's only the collective dynamic uh, aspect of it and the focus energy that delineates the differences between the two. And I, and I think that really kind of, for me at least, uh, drew a lot, uh, brought a lot together and connected the dots because uh, Gnosticism and esoteric Christianity for me really is understanding that it is the same. It's just a difference in the collective understanding and the collective energy 
that's applied to it or not so much applied to it, but, you know, experienced. And, you know, um, I, I just got so much more of that. And I, I went back to, you know, one of my journals and I was like making more asterisks and dog earing everything. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is one more thing I need to do. Uh, side comment, my wife's always like, just buy Kindle. Just, you know, how do you buy Kindle? You gotta, you gotta dog ear that sucker and, and, and write in the margins and underline stuff and say, I totally agree or absolutely not put a giant exit or something. So anything, uh, anyways, um, didn't put a giant X over anything that I heard uh, this evening. This was just outstanding. And I wish I could dog ear this more, but I know I'm going to go back and watch it repeatedly. Thanks. Well, thank you. I, I was going to add, I love the fact that as a community, so many people here journal or doodle or kind of work it out and, in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in real time. I mean, I think that connects back to Rick Beck's thing about uh, listening only with the, the art, the PKD art of, of you know spiritual directing thyself i guess and that was what i wanted to bring up anyway was this idea of uh you were talking about the dna that runs through it and that kind of ties into pkd's idea of you know the empire never ended and the time is now um the these things that we're dealing with these these ideas and these experiences that we're dealing with in gnosticism are like how do I even put it? They're they're eternal and they're backwards looking, but they're forwards looking, and they're they're at right angles to the time as we experience it. Uh, it's stuff that happens in a at a right angle to our normal experience of time because it allows us to look backwards and look forwards at the same time as we're experiencing this stuff. So I thought this was great. This was a I wonderful. I was hoping so much that it would dovetail a little bit uh, with your, your presentation. So. I, it totally did. I mean, this is totally the, the, win. <laughs> the academic explanation of the craziness that PKD was doing from a layman's perspective. I mean, yeah. he's he's totally an untrained philosopher. He has the the Britannica Encyclopedia for his his philosophical sources, but it's it's totally the the same vein. It's that uh, it's it, it's not exact, but it rhymes. <laughs> well, that's I mean, and and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, that somebody like PKD is such a great example that as intellectual as Gnosticism is, and it is an intellectual exercise for many of us that should never be meant to exclude those who don't have intellectual leanings or intellectual training um, because it's it's not ultimately about that. It's not ultimately, yeah. th that's not the goal. That's, that's a tool that we use to get to the goal. That ties in with that quote that somebody reminded me of that it's so fantastically complicated that it breaks your brain so you get to the heart of the matter, the simplicity yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the the one about vocabulary vocabulary failure. Yes. Uh, I was going to add a, a a bit there as you were talking, Scott, uh, talking about the way in which it appears in manifest. I I don't think we we should be so surprised that something we experience as both transcendent and imminent, we express as both transcendent and imminent, and we kind of you know see out in the world or, or deal with a thing out in the world that is both transcendent and, and, and imminent, if, if the whole thing is a kind of series of 
mythical mirrors, I guess, as it were. Apparently, uh, His Excellence needs to eat. So, uh, weak. Food is for the Mind week. you, I'm uh, between between Tim or I. I'm I'm clearly the one that could stand in this meal. So, and, and he uh, hasn't even been up since one a.m. Right. He's a latecomer. <laughs> week, week, week. What? That's right. Totally. <laughs> Get some sleep, Brendan. <laughs> oh, well, I, I did take a little nap during the during the lunch break because not, I didn't need lunch, you know. It's more fun when you're sleep deprived. So uh, <laughs> every, everyone is, <laughs> which is why I'm fun all the time. 